Hi everyone, welcome back to the MedBullet Step 2 and 3 podcast. In today's episode, we cover the topic of diffuse axonal injury found under the neurology section at medbullets.com. Let's begin with a clinical snapshot. A 35-year-old man is brought to the emergency department following a motor vehicle accident in which his car struck a tree at high speeds. His airway, breathing, and circulation is intact and a non-contrast CT scan of the head is unremarkable. He is unconscious, but hemodynamically stable. An MRI of the brain demonstrates multifocal T2 hyperintensities in the splenium of the corpus callosum. Let's continue with an introduction to diffuse axonal injury. Clinically, this is defined as a type of traumatic brain injury secondary to blunt injury to the brain. It is generally found in severe TBI and is thus considered in patients with Glasgow Coma Score of less than 8. In terms of the epidemiology, TBI is the leading cause of death and disability in children and young adults. In terms of the etiology, it is most commonly due to high-speed motor vehicle accidents. With regards to the pathogenesis, there is an accelerating and decelerating motion that results in shearing forces to the white matter of axons, impairing neuron interconnection. The microscopic damage occurs to the axons at the junction of the gray and white matter, and the most commonly affected sites are the corpus callosum and the brainstem. Moving on to the presentation, symptoms may include headache, dizziness, nausea and vomiting, fatigue, and loss of consciousness and coma in severe cases. On exam, one may note signs of dysautonomia, such as tachycardia, tachypnea, hyperthermia, posturing, and vasoplegia. In terms of further imaging, non-contrast head CT is indicated as the initial head imaging study in patients with a head injury. Findings may include small punctate hemorrhages in the white matter tracts. Note that the head CT is low yield in detecting diffuse axonal injury. An MRI of the brain is indicated as the imaging modality of choice in diagnosing diffuse axonal injury. And when making the diagnosis, this is based on a clinical diagnosis supported by radiographic findings. It should be suspected in a patient with a rotational or acceleration-deceleration closed head injury. In terms of the differential, make sure to think about subdural hematoma, with differentiating factors being that this will present with the crescent-shaped hemorrhage seen on CT head without contrast. Also think about subarachnoid hemorrhage, with differentiating factors being that this will present with a thunderclap headache and a hyperdensity in the subarachnoid space on CT head without contrast and also think about an epidural hematoma, with differentiating factors being that this will present with a lens-shaped and biconvex hyperdensity that does not cross the suture lines. With regards to treatment, management is geared towards preventing secondary injuries and facilitating rehab. For example, preventing hypotension, cerebral edema, hypoxia, and increased intracranial pressure. And lastly, complications related to diffuse axonal injury include dysautonomia. Now that we've discussed the major points relating to diffuse axonal injury, let's walk through a question to apply what we've learned and get a sense of how the topic might be tested. For this question, consider the following clinical scenario. A 36-year-old man presents to the trauma bay after a fall from the roof of his home two hours prior. Emergency medical responders at the scene found him agitated and vomiting. Upon arrival, his temperature is 98.8 degrees Fahrenheit, or 37.1 degrees Celsius. Blood pressure is 154 over 92. Pulse is 95 beats per minute. 
and respirations are 12 breaths per minute. The physical exam is significant for a confused man with occipital bruising and abrasions on his posterior left arm and back. His GCS is 11. Airway suctioning shows presence of food contents and blood in his respiratory secretions. The decision was made to intubate for airway protection and to safely proceed for further assessment. Head CT demonstrates mild cerebral edema with no evidence of intracranial hemorrhage. MRI confirms diffuse axonal injury. Once stabilized, the patient is admitted to the ICU for further monitoring. Later that day, his intraventricular pressure monitor documents pressures between 25 to 30 for the past 15 minutes. Which of the following is the most appropriate next step in management? And the answer choices are Choice 1. Craniectomy Choice 2. Decrease sedation Choice 3. Hypoosmotic fluids Choice 4. Increase respiratory rate Or Choice 5. Trendelenburg positioning The best answer to this question is Choice 4. Increased respiratory rate. This patient has sustained elevated intracranial pressures from traumatic diffuse axonal injury that should be lowered by increasing the respiratory rate of his ventilator. ICP can be conceptualized as the combination of the pressures exerted by the volume of cerebral spinal fluid, intracranial blood, and brain tissue inside of a fixed skull volume. A change in the volume of any of those three components must result in a corresponding change in the other components. Otherwise, the ICP will rise. Hyperventilation can be used in urgent situations to rapidly lower the ICP. Cerebral blood flow is largely dependent on central chemoreceptors that are sensitive to pH and PCO2. The PCO2 is the partial pressure of carbon dioxide, which reflects the amount of gas that is dissolved in blood. Increasing the respiratory rate will increase the elimination of carbon dioxide from the blood, lowering the PCO2. This then causes vasoconstriction of the cerebral arteries, and the resulting reduction of cerebral blood volume decreases ICP. Let's also discuss why the other choices are incorrect. Choice 1. A craniectomy removes a portion of the rigid skull, allowing the intracranial contents to expand outside of the intracranial cavity to reduce the ICP. While effective, this is not the most appropriate next step in this case, as other less invasive methods should be trialed first. Choice 2. Decreasing sedation can promote sympathetic responses such as hypertension and tachycardia and lead to increased metabolic demand. This will increase carbon dioxide production and the PCO2, causing vasodilation. The subsequent increase in the cerebral blood volume raises the ICP. Choice 3. Hypoosmotic fluids increase ICP by leaking more free water into the cerebral parenchyma. Hyperosmotic therapies, such as mannitol or hypertonic saline, will instead cause the opposite effect, drawing cerebrospinal fluid out of the cerebral parenchyma, reducing the intracranial tissue volume, and lowering the ICP. Choice 5. Trendelenburg positioning, in which the body is supine with feet elevated above the head, will increase the ICP by increasing blood flow and limiting venous outflow from the head. Patients should be placed in reverse Trendelenburg instead. Finally, a bullet summary. Strategies to reduce intracranial pressure include hyperventilation, hyperosmotic fluids, reverse Trendelenburg positioning, and sedation. That's all for this review about diffuse axonal injury. We hope that was helpful. This is the MedBullets Step 2 and 3 podcast, a daily audio review session from MedBullets. 
the free learning and collaboration community for medical student education. As a reminder, you can follow along with these podcast episodes by reviewing the topics directly on MedBullets.com. You can listen to these episodes on the MedBullets website or phone app while reading through the topic. If the MedBullets podcast has been valuable to you, we'd be thrilled if you considered leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all tomorrow, right here on the MedBullets Step 2 and 3 podcast.